Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. It is the 3rd of February and it is Thursday. I hope today that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that you are seeking today the things of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. That's my certainly my encouragement for each of us and all of us this morning. There is an article today um, in the New York Post, and it's being covered by other news outlets as well. Um, It is jaw-droppingly painful and horrific. Um, And so I'm going to tell you that in advance, and I am not going to um, read the full content of it because, frankly, it's not appropriate for Christian radio. Let me just read the headline. Um, SUNY, which is uh, the State University of New York, SUNY professor is now under review uh, after a video emerges of him supporting pedophilia. And so this is in relationship to a, an ethics professor um, who, in, in, a, in more than one video interview, insists that it is not, quote, obvious to him why pedophilia is wrong. Um, and he says things like, imagine that an adult male wants to have sex with a 12-year-old girl, and imagine that she is a willing participant. Um, I don't uh, see anything wrong with that. It is not obvious to me that it's, in fact, wrong. Um, I think exploring uh, the why is important. She talks. Uh, he goes on to talk about um, fundamental principles of morality. Now, that is where I want to put a stake in the ground. Fundamental principles of morality. The reason that this professor, this ethics professor uh, in the New York State University system sees no obvious uh, reason that sex with minor children is wrong is that he has no fixed compass point. He has no sense of absolute right and wrong. Um, Yes, he's an ethics professor at a university, but I would be uh, just absolutely confident in saying he has no um, measure by which to say that something is or is not ethical. He's using a conversation about an age of consent instead of using a conversation or an argument about adult responsibility for vulnerable children. Um, He's also using... uh, this understanding that sexual gratification is somehow the right of the individual, regardless of who is harmed by them in the process. So, you know, I, I am, I, I absolutely understand that sex has its place. Um, but we now live in a culture that has decoupled sex from child rearing, uh, decoupled children from the context of marriage between one you know, biological man and one biological woman, 
Um, We have further disconnected the primary network of relationships that God intended around the nuclear family. And so you don't just get the fragmentation of the individual and the commodification and use of children for adult pleasure. You get hedonism. You get hedonism and the deepest perversions of it. Hedonism is the relentless pursuit of pleasure without regard for the effects of your behavior on others. And Genesis 6, 5 to 8 has something to say about hedonism. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man upon the earth. The story of Noah follows that. Another passage comes to mind. Um in terms of everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. I mean, that's actually the refrain in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, this 450-year history um, during which Israel goes through these cycles of doing what is right in their own eyes, and then God sending a judge who, you know, let's just remember, those judges weren't uh, paragons of morality themselves, but God did use them as fallen and broken people to bring his people back around to, uh, you know, out of moral chaos and into at least a period of time of relative peace. But then they would fall right back into another cycle of sin and moral anarchy. And the book's final verse, Judges twenty-one twenty-five, you know, offers again the same refrain, which is, you know, ultimately serves as a summary of Uh, the nation's ills for this 450-year period. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And today we might describe that as everybody living by their own truth. So when you think about um, the world today and how we experience it and how we live in relationship with others and how we live in community and, and how we're going to have any social or civil cohesion, I want you to think about the degradation of the individual and the hedonism that now rules the human heart. When truth is regarded as whatever each person imagines to satisfy their most basic or base desires, then culture has reached the point of moral anarchy. And friends, political and full-blown social anarchy is never far behind. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I will continue this conversation in just a moment. Dr. Peter Kapsner now joining the conversation about everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Welcome, Peter. Yeah, I don't know, Carmen, that you could have had a more troubling uh, headline to read this morning, right? I just, you, you wonder how we could possibly get to a place like this where somebody would make this kind of statement about what might be true in the world. And I don't know. I mean, I've been around academia a long time. And and while I do love university life, I think one thing that can be helpful about how these things get started sometimes, because I, I was I was talking with my class on sexuality in about 2018, I want to say, when I, I believe it was a professor out of the University of Michigan published a paper that wasn't too different than the headline that you read about, you know, what, what could possibly be the problem with uh, what is now being called in some circles as minor attraction or, or pedophilia. 
And in the way academia tends to work is that in order to, to get tenure and in order to move forward in your career, you have to publish sort of innovative uh, contributions to knowledge, I suppose they call it. I remember when I sat in my graduation at the University of Edinburgh and the the, the man stood up um, sort of almost sanctimoniously and said, you will be the contributors to knowledge. And, and in order to put food on the table and advance in your career in academia, you, you do have to um, make statements that uh, of, of research, supposedly, that hadn't existed previously. So there's a lot of reliable information that comes out of academia, but there's also, Carmen, a lot of very unreliable information that comes out because people are trying to get ahead. And so this person uh, is trying to make a splash, but here's the unfortunate part of it, and, and you really hit on it in, in your opener, is that those splashes, they so often then become sort of the common way in which societies understand themselves and they become common practices. And I certainly know of when there was a lot of publishing going on about, so we should fully embrace same, same gender relationships or gender dysphoria, gender blurring these things. A lot of that started in the halls of academia exactly like the way this one started. And people were horrified at the ideas. And yet now it's become sort of just common practice in terms of how we understand ourselves. And, and I think without a, a robust theology of sin and without a robust theology of, of the beauty of kingdom life and what our sexuality can be, uh, whether we are single or married, um, then this is kind of where we go with the whole thing. And so it's, it's so troubling. But unfortunately, Roman society in Paul's day of the first and second century there in Rome, this kind of practice was fully embraced as part of what Paul was speaking about in some of his letters. So that's actually one of the arguments that this um, professor uses is that, you know, there's cultures around the world even today where, you know, these these quote unquote moral limits in terms of the age of consent or um, or he doesn't even like that language because he says, I mean, after all, I mean, you know, kids, we make kids do all kinds of things. I mean, kids who are going um, to, you know, to. Uh, to school to prepare for their bot mitzvah or their bar mitzvah. They're not, I mean, they're not doing that by their own consent. Kids that are going and playing kickball today, they're not doing that by their own consent. It's an interesting, you know, it's just really interesting. He he thinks children can and should be compelled to do all kinds of things. Mm. Um, that he has seems to have no understanding whatsoever that the that that is a human being made in the image of God. Um, and equal unto me in every way, except the amount of time we've been upon the earth. Like, he doesn't seem, it just seems to be no sense of humanity itself. It's it's not just that it's this horrible idea about pedophilia. It's that he seems to have no understanding of what a human being really is. Yeah, I, I think what you just said, we live in such a disconnected society for a variety of reasons. And then the way sexuality is portrayed is, uh, is so often removes us from the individual. Things like pornography and other and other expressions of this, we end up having to objectify another human being. Um, otherwise, our, our hearts just get torn in two by so many of these practices. So you have to kind of shut off. You have to do what psychologists call disassociate, meaning you kind of remove yourself. You're sort of a hollowed out shell where there's a difference between you and your behavior. And once you do that, then everybody around you becomes objects to be used in some way. And, and Carmen, this doesn't just happen in sexuality. The, just the very idea of networking and business, a very common practice, is in some sense an objectification of another person where you can use them for some measure of personal gain, as tends to be how that works. And I think we underestimate 
how much we've been uh, objectifying each other in a variety of social circles, sexuality being the primary one, but in a lot of relationships. I think you and I are going to talk a little bit about loneliness, too, uh, here in terms of middle age, lack of friendship, all of that this morning. And and it really is the epidemic of our times. And, and I think what you described, uh, because I'm with these young people uh, and I talk about them often, I have about 90 students right now in the age category of 18 to 22. That mental health crisis about which we read, it's real. I'm seeing it in the classroom day in and day out. And I don't know that there's many among the 90 students that aren't struggling uh, profoundly often with mental health. And I think the root of all of that is this individualism, this objectification of one another, this using each other for gain in a variety of ways. And, and this is what you read this morning is one of the most horrific expressions of a much larger story. All right, we're going to pivot and we're going to have a conversation about friendship and uh, and actually what we can do if we are lonely. Um, we're going to ask Peter Kapsner to uh, serve here for a moment as our friendship coach. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. Okay, we have talked about the loneliness epidemic. We have talked with one another about, you know, frankly, the times that we feel lonely and the challenge of making friends in middle age. Well, it's uh, it's now headline news, and there are now people whose job it is to serve as friendship coaches. <laughs> so we're going to talk with Dr. Peter Kapsner about how to find and keep friends in middle age. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure <laughs> the, the, the best authority on friendship coaching uh, uh, in this, Carmen. I mean, if I if I can have a friend for upwards of a year, that that is an eternity in, in my in my life. Um, but but kidding aside, with that part of it, I, I find that if if you can just have one or two friends, I think we we've, we've talked with our kids about this all the time. That there is this temptation to want to run with the herd and large groups of people and and uh, be a part of something that that is often really intoxicating. But really, what we actually need are probably just one or two or three really good friends with whom to do the journey. And I think one of the big struggles that we have, well, there's there's a few of them. One is the individualism that you and I talk about often that um, keeps us disconnected from each other because usually our relationships are over a common affinity. Maybe it's a, it's a work relationship, and once that work relationship ends then that relationship tends to end. And we inevitably say, oh, we got to stay in touch. We'll keep getting together. It was so fun to work with you or all of these statements. Give it six months and we're no longer doing those things. Or, or retirement um, at its core is the idea that you finally now will have the freedom and hopefully the resources to do whatever it is that you want to do. And, and that very idea is a disconnecting idea. People travel, they go do what they want to do. Um, I think to make friends, if, if you're going to want to make a friend, it's probably going to take an entire adjustment in how we understand the world, and, and it might take some time. And so I think some practical things, I was talking with some people that um, I want to say they're probably in their 60s, maybe early 70s as well, and, and still thankfully have some good health about them. And I think there's in the next generation, there's going to be a move to where people are not going to be quite as interested to, to have all of this geographic mobility. And what I mean by that is, is even to this day, my best friends live about 20 to 30 minutes away by car. And so at best, all we can really do is set up adult playdates and, uh, and, and get together every two months and then do the four-hour ritual of how are you doing and it's good to get caught up and then there's meaningful conversation and then we say oh we can't wait to do it again sometime and then we go off to our lives again and then we meet up again you know six weeks later or whatever it is and that's not all bad but i think if if you can find some people 
with whom you have some measure of geographic proximity. So there's a real ease to be in each other's um, lives. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is I, the people that I've watched in middle age and older age that continue to have friends usually are the kind of people that still have a purpose or they, they have uh, something that they, uh, a bigger opportunity that they're doing together. So I was talking with these older men. I said, well, you all live in the city of Wayzata. It's a suburb here uh, west of Minneapolis. And this idea can translate to just about any suburban place. I said, why, why don't you just make this city, uh, this city your ministry on some level? Why don't, well, why don't you make it uh, a place where you are regularly um, bringing light into the coffee shops and into the grocery stores and into the restaurants, um, start doing some things that you and I have talked about in the past, some, some absurd disruptive kindness, and just say, you know, a few times a week, we're just going to get together and, and go start shepherding in the city. And I can't tell you what kind of doors God begins to open when believers gather like that, suddenly there's families that need help. Suddenly there's friends that need help. Hallie and I were just um, doing this in our little local village, uh, which is also west of Minneapolis. And um, we go to the same restaurant, I don't know, probably two or three times a month. And we sit at mostly the same table. And the, and the food server has gotten to know us. She literally shrieked with delight when we walked in um, this last week. And then she sat, there was a quiet night in the restaurant. She sat down at the table twice for about five minutes. We know her life. We know her kids. Um, we're sharing friendship and parenting kinds of things. And we would love to be able to do that kind of thing in our little village with, I don't know, two or three or four other people, single couples, where... These are ways in which you make friends is is stay a little bit closer to home, uh, number one. And number two, start thinking, you know, what does God have for me in this specific city? I'm not going to worry about all the other cities in the world. There's going to be believers there, too. What does God have for me in this geographic place? Right there, I think, is the start of maybe over six to, to 12 months, you'll start making some friends. I think that vulnerability is a is a huge part of this. It is. Like we, ha- we have to get to the place where we're not just sort of mulling around in I'm lonely, I need a friend, but we're actually investing time and energy in identifying and then cultivating a friend. It takes time. It it doesn't happen without intentionality and some some sacrifice. Um, finding something to do together, I think, is important as well. Um, and then being willing to do things that might be outside of my comfort zone, certainly outside of my routine, in order to do things with my, you know, emerging friend that they like to do or that they invite me to do. And so I think all of those things, you know, particularly by the time we reach middle age, we're just not so sure we want to try anything that we're not already mm, good at yeah. uh, or go anywhere that we don't already know we like something on the menu or whatever. Like, And so I think that vulnerability and a willingness to um, get outside of our own comfort zone and take a risk is is important as well. I mean, at some point you have to pass the little sheet of paper all folded up that says, will you be my friend? You know, check the box. Yes or no. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's there is. rejection is possible. Yeah, no. So well said. I, I think Carmen, actually you and I have a future in, in some sort of friendship coaching here. Can we start like a TikTok ministry or, <laughs> or some other social, you, you, you no, just friendship okay. hour with Carmen and Pete. So, we would kill it. I don't know. We'd have to be friends first. Well, that's true. That's a good point. We could practice what we <laughs> preach for at least a couple of months. I love it. Oh, you know, I love you. Um, thank you so much, as always, for the joyful perspective that you bring us, even when we're talking about very, very challenging and difficult things. That is Dr. Peter Kapsner. You can find him at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, where he teaches all kinds of things, including a course on sexuality and human relationships. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. 
often, how regularly, uh, and in what variety of ways do you pray for your spouse? Not, not, you know, set a schedule to talk with each other about things, not the list of things that we need to do, not, you know, get our calendars synced up so we can have a monthly date. Let's talk about prayer. What uh, does your prayer life look like in relationship to your spouse? We're going to talk next with Michael and Melissa Kruger on the topic of praying for our spouse. The book is Five Things to Pray for Your Spouse. We'll be right back. Joining us now, Michael and Melissa Kruger. Michael is the president and professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Melissa is an author and director of women's initiatives at the Gospel Coalition. Michael and Melissa, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. We're so glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, Michael, let's start with you. Why did uh, why did the two of you write this book? And then, what was the experience of writing a book together like? Well, we're so excited about this book. It's it's been on our hearts for a long time. Uh, the listeners may not know that actually it's fortuitous that the book is coming out this year because this year happens to be our twenty fifth wedding anniversary year. Uh, we didn't necessarily plan it that way, but it worked out that way. And really, that's what's behind the book. We we really value the importance of Christian marriages. We think it's vital for the health of the church and for the future of the church. And we think one of the best ways to build Christian marriages is to pray for your spouse. And we want to not only model that, but hopefully with this book, encourage others down that same path. So we we think it's really about blessing the church by blessing marriages. I love that. So the book is What are the fi- are the five things to pray for your spouse? We are giving away copies today if you want to enter the drawing for um for a book. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Uh, Melissa, congratulations on 25 years of marriage with Michael. I'm wondering maybe what advice you might turn back and give yourself in your first year of marriage. Uh, yeah, it would be so great if you could talk to yourself in the first year of marriage, wouldn't it? Um, I, I honestly think, and I'm not, I'm not saying this because of the book, I would say pray more and um, trust the Lord in your marriage to be working in your marriage more than you feel like you have to make things happen, if that makes sense. I think in the first year of marriage, both parties are often trying to fix the other. If I could just get them right enough, <laughs> then everything would be okay. And um, and both, both people in a marriage do need fixing in some sense. We all, you know, we all need the Lord to change us and help us, but that's the Lord's process um, in each other's lives. And so I would definitely say to my one-year married self, um, be on your knees in prayer, um, that the Lord would strengthen your marriage, protect your marriage, that the Lord would grow your hearts together, knit you together in love, um, and that he would be at work. Because it's it's honestly, I think sometimes we trust in the strength of our love for one another, but it's really God's love for us that keeps us loving one another. Oh, I think that's imperative. I have a friend who at some point along the way um, just acknowledged that she couldn't be her husband's Holy Spirit. 
Like, <laughs> that's totally God's job. And um, if, you know, the sooner we get out of the way uh, and lift up our prayers for our spouse, instead of imagining that we are the one who knows exactly which, uh, you know, in which direction they need to be brought into greater conformity with the image of God or the will of God in their life, right? Like, if, when we get out of the way, we do our part in in praying and loving and then trust that God's going to do what God is going to do in the heart and life and mind of the person we love most in the world, um, you know, in, in this case, our spouse. Yeah. Michael, yeah. what um, what are the five things we should be praying for our spouse? <laughs> well, the book is, is filled with them. So the five things title has to do with the way we break down the prayer structure. So we go through the book and cover a lot of different topics. I believe there's 21 actually different topics in the book for prayer, which I think is one of the things about the book that we're excited about. And then within each of those topics, we break it down into fives. So you could spread it out over five days in a week. You could do all five theoretically in one in one day. People are flexible, but it's just basically five different ways to pray for your spouse about that particular issue. So just one example for uh, for the listener is that we have a section on helping your spouse, praying for your spouse as your spouse witnesses to others in their life for Christ. This is something that sometimes we just don't pray for each other about, how you evangelize your neighbor or witness to a coworker. And so we break down five ways to pray for your spouse and helping them as they witness in our light uh, in the world today. And so we think that little fivefold structure is really useful. Um, and like I said, sometimes it'll just be Monday through Friday, which is a, a, a common way people will use it, we think. Yeah, I love that. I love that it's not um, a list of five things to pray, right? It's uh, it's these five different ways or approaches to prayer across an entire range of of topics, situations, life circumstances. It's just a very refreshing approach. Melissa, I know that you have um, also written five things to pray for our kids. Um, does that take a similar approach to the conversation? It does. And what I love about this whole series, um, I think they maybe have nine books in this series now. You know, five things to pray for your church, five things to pray for someone you love, you know, all of these different topics. What I love about this series is that it roots all the prayers in scriptural passages. So there'll be a passage that then's broken down into five segments that you pray for, for your spouse. And this was the same thing for children. So um, I think I think my prayers, even for my, my kids and my husband, can just be, you know, Lord, keep them safe. Lord, encourage them today. And that, and that those are great prayers. I mean, that, that they, we all need encouragement. We all want safety for the ones we love, but these like looking at the scriptures and looking at what God is communicating, he longs for, for his people, and then praying those truths for them. It's really enriched my own prayer life. So in, in some ways, writing it was a big help for me, <laughs> if that makes sense, um, to really pray scriptural prayers for my family. Five Things to Pray for Your Spouse by Michael and Melissa Kruger. We are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter the drawing um, for uh, for one of those copies, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Michael, talk with us about how prayer has impacted your marriage over time or maybe in different seasons. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, when you get married, you don't know what sort of journey you're going to be on. There's so many big decisions. There's so many life changes. You know, if we had time, we could talk about all the things we endured when we lived overseas or, you know, when we had our children or job changes. And, you know, prayer is one of those things that unites a couple together 
as they endure those challenges. I mean, challenges can either bring you together or separate you. Um, and you need to be uh, able to be unified to survive those things in, in any marriage. Um, and one of the things I've seen prayer do for Melissa and I is it just binds us and bonds us together on a common cause in a common direction. And there's, and there's another way I think prayers helped us. And I think helps people in general is that, you know, marriages also have challenges of getting along, especially in your first few years. There's, there's sometimes there's conflict in marriage. Here's one thing I've learned is that resolving conflict with somebody is a lot easier when you, when you pray for them. When you pray for a person that you're, you're struggling with, you, you realize your heart is softened towards them. And this is so important in marriages today, you know, as spouses, like all of us struggle to get along, you know, you, you, you have to learn to pray for your spouse. And when you do, you'll find that the Holy Spirit softens your heart, changes you. See, we often think we want to change our spouse, but prayer changes us. And that's, that's one of the things that I think is so key for the book. I think that getting on our, you know, getting on our knees together before the Lord is just always this reminder to Jim and I that, um, you know, God's the one who made of the two of us one um, and that when we go before him together, God sees us as one and it helps us see ourselves as one, even if, you know, in the moment there's some challenge or difficulty that we're facing, um, you know, or, you know, or frankly, some sin that needs to be addressed and um, and confessed. Uh, and so when we when you talk about the prayer life of a married couple, uh, could you could you walk us into that a little bit in your own life, maybe even over time, how you developed a consistent prayer life together? Yeah, I'd be glad to. I mean, you know, sometimes I think, um, you know, we have to have uh, all these different systems and things, but but some of it is just to begin every meal with prayer. You know, I mean, that's just a, a small way we pray together and to say thank you to the Lord for giving us this meal. And you know, th- that's just a little way that every couple can easily bring prayer into their marriage. Um, but but usually our prayer time has taken place around meals, um, dinner table prayers. And this has continued as we've had children. So it began, you know, when it was just the two of us, but then it really has grown. Now it's breakfast time, actually, when we pray together as a family with our kids. And it's a wonderful thing to invite them into. And it's this, it's this kindness to one another um, to say, I love you. How can I pray for you? I mean, it really is just this welcoming, um, invitation to say, I, I may not be able to fix what's going on in your life, but I care about what's going on in your life. And I'm going to ask the Lord to help us in it. And so really, I think it's this wonderful thing that we can do for each other. In fact, even today, as Mike was heading off to work and, um, I'm heading off to, to work on a writing project today. And I just said, Hey, pray for me this weekend. And just knowing that he will is such a gift in our marriage that, that I, even though we're going to be, you know, not together this weekend, he, I know he will be praying for me. And that that's a gift that we give to one another in marriage. I think asking that question is real, is so great as well, right? It's just asking our spouse to pray for us. It's a huge invitation. Um, and, and we ought not take it for granted. We ought not, I ought not take for granted that Jim is praying for me. I also can't take for granted that he knows how I am desiring to be prayed for. Like, I, there are specific things, right? And so I have to be vulnerable and ask him to pray for me in those specific ways. Um, and then I have to certainly trust that he is going to do that and do the same for him. 
We are talking with Michael and Melissa Kruger today. We're talking specifically about their book, Five Things to Pray for Your Spouse, Prayers That Change and Strengthen Your Marriage. It's a it's a wonderful guide that's going to help you pray bold, scripture-based prayers for your husband or your wife, um, strengthen and enrich your marriage. If you are interested in entering the drawing for the copies we're giving away today, text the word book to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back. Happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary for a cheerful toast. And- that is our big 25th anniversary gift to our conversation partners today, Mike and Melissa Kruger. So congratulations. 25 years, that's no small, um, that's no small thing. Thank you. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we appreciate that little song there. Our uh, there anniversary is, is actually in July. We'll replay this then and, uh, and revel in it. So. <laughs> there you go. Well, we didn't want you to think we, uh, we, that we missed that. So, um, Melissa, talk with us about um, how you... How you might encourage somebody who's listening, who they're not married, they desire to be married. Um, are there ways to pray for the spouse we don't have? Yeah, that's a good question. And I know I did. You know, before I met Mike, I really prayed, um, hoping that one day I'd be married and um, hoping that the Lord would bring um, a man who loved loved God and, um, cared about spiritual things. And I do think, um, taking those requests before the Lord is what we, we can do with our, our deepest longings. So I know a lot of women out there long to be married, a lot of men out there long to be married. And I think it's even more complicated in this day and age, um, with, internet dating and all the different ways to date, you know, I look back and I'm like, goodness, it was just so much simpler back in, back in the day in some ways. Um, but to really ask the Lord to bring the right person and help us to, you know, look for the right type of things and who we want, because I, I do think there can be this, um, you know, we almost create our list of things mm-hmm. we want in a spouse and rather just to lay it before the Lord. Um, the Lord made me and he knows me better than I even know myself and that he would give me a partner um, that would, that would, you know, compliment me basically in all the ways I need that maybe I don't even know I need. And so I think we, we think we know ourselves better than we actually do, but just to pray and ask the Lord to bring just the right person that we need. And it, they may not look, and I use that term really broadly, they may not look at all like what we imagine or think we need um, or the person with whom God intends to create of us one person and one life for his kingdom advancement. Uh, it's just, yeah, an incredible. That's an incredible truth. I absolutely uh, echo that. Um, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in uh, in maybe hearing you address... Um, men who are listening right now whose wives are not Christians or women who are listening right now whose husbands are not Christians and how we pray for our spouse when we can't pray with our spouse? Yeah, well, that's actually really a great question. And, you know, one of the things I love about this book is we actually have uh, a section on exactly that. Um, we have a setup where we just recognize there are some people reading this book that would be married and uh, their spouse is not a believer for whatever reason. 
Um, and so we have sections in there about how to pray for your spouse, of course, obviously for their conversion, that they would come to know Christ. But many of the things you can pray for someone, even if they're a non-Christian, that God would still protect them, bless them, lead them, even change them at some level. Obviously, conversion is really the ultimate foundation for real change, but we can even ask God to be at work in the life of our non-Christian spouse uh, in a common grace way. Um, and so, yeah, we build that into the book, and I think you raise a really good point there. Not every marriage is between uh, uh, two believers, and you, you, you need to have those categories. The other thing about the title is, is, as we've already noted, is five things to pray for your spouse. So you don't always have to be with them when you pray. And I think we certainly envision that lots of times uh, spouses may be saying these prayers together. But, you know, whether your, your partner or your spouse is a believer or unbeliever, you don't have to actually physically be with them. Um, and so if your spouse is not a Christian, you can still pray for them. You can still pray mostly all these prayers. Um, even for a non-Christian. So I think it'll be, it'd be helpful for marriages in that fashion, too. All right. So now I'm going to invite the two of you to do a little, um, a little exercise or demonstration so that we can better understand this. Uh-oh. So, What's coming? Well, <laughs> I, I'm just going to ask the two of you, I mean, take a minute, Melissa, take a minute, Michael, then take a minute and pray for your spouse. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. I'll start. Father, um, I just lift Mike before you this morning. Um, Lord, I pray that the eyes of his heart would be open to know the hope to which you have called him. Lord, I pray that his love for you would increase and that each day of his life, um, he would draw close to you, that he would love you with a depth of knowledge and insight um, and that your spirit would be at work in his life. Um, Lord, we thank you. And Lord, I thank you that you have called him to yourself, that you have set your love upon him, and that you have um, made him my husband. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you would be at work in his life today. Lord, I lift up to you my wife, Melissa, and commit her into your hands. Lord, we know that all good things come from above. Uh, and Lord, I ask that you would shower your blessings on her. Uh, Lord, particularly, I pray for the ministry you've called her to. Even today, she'll be leaving by car to go to a place where she'll write and work on a book that we think will be a blessing to the church. So, Lord, give her your insight, uh, your grace, your wisdom. Help the words to flow from her uh, mind and heart naturally. May they be from you. Lord, may you help her craft a book that can be a blessing to so many parents out there who want to think about how to raise their children. Uh, and Lord, as you have her write this book, Lord, I pray that you'd be at work in her own heart. Uh, Lord, soften it, change it, encourage it, lift it up to you. Uh, make her more and more into the image of Christ, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen and amen. I, uh, I deeply appreciate your, your willingness to do that because I think that many of us learn by overhearing other people do this. And not all of us are in a context uh, or grew up in a context where we heard our parents pray for each other um, or maybe even in a discipling relationship. We've never heard that happen because we've been in, you know, gender segregated environments. And so we didn't ever hear 
um, the husband pray for the wife because we were with the women and um, or, you know, or the men didn't hear the wives praying for their husbands because they were with the men. So, Michael and uh, and Melissa, thank you so much for the book, the gift of the book, the gift of the conversation, the gift of the shared uh, prayer time today as well. You guys can visit with Michael at michaeljkruger.com. Com. Uh, you can find Melissa's blog, Wits End, at the Gospel Coalition. The book we've been discussing today, Five Things to Pray for Your Spouse. We are giving away copies. You can enter the drawing by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. Mike and Melissa, thank you so much. And Melissa, blessings, travel mercies today, and blessings on your writing project. Thanks so much for having us today. Great to be Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. Great to be with you guys. We'll be right back. Sometimes I think we just need to do out loud and in public um, as a demonstration to others what we are most often and most likely to do in private and behind closed doors. And so let me encourage you to pray in public today. Um, If you are sharing a, a coffee or a meal with a fellow Christian, I invite you to make a, you know, not not in any ugly way, but in a publicly demonstrative way where you bow your head in public together and you pray and just ask that Christ would be made known to others in the breaking of the, of the bread. Like That's it. It's that simple prayer. Um, Holy God, let other people see the reality of who you are and your gracious influence in our lives as we sit here and share this cup of coffee or break this bread together. Um, You know, how today might you be a living demonstration of the gospel to others? The way you drive, the way you interact with people in line at the store, the way you go about your work, the way um, in which you speak to other people, even the very tone of your voice, How might you and I, as ambassadors of the King and the Kingdom, show forth the gospel today in ways that would catch the attention of a world in moral anarchy? People desperately in need of the love of God, and yet completely unaware of His presence and the gift of His grace. That's my encouragement to you today. Let your light so shine before others that they would see God, that they would see God. People don't need another piece of our mind. They do very much need the peace of Christ. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.